Well, I said I had a few announcements uh, to go over with you real quick before I jump in to the sermon this morning. Um, we have life groups that are getting kicked back off real quick here. We haven't done life groups for the past two years. Um, uh, in case you were asleep in 2020, uh, it kind of changed everything. You know, there was a few things uh, that changed around the world in businesses. If you own a business, you know about that. In churches, uh, in government, there were so many things that changed beginning in 2020. And it, there were, with us uh, as a church, we felt like it was very important not to just rush ahead and just go about doing things the way that we'd always done them. Yeah, we'd done life groups for the past several years and not had Wednesday night services. But whenever something big happens, I think that's the most important time to really cling to the Lord and open your ears, slow down. Hey, what's going on? What, what do you want us to do? Because it's like a shaking that happens and you don't need to just jump ahead going back doing everything you'd always been doing. So we haven't just jumped right back into life groups, even though I know... Uh, a lot of people wanted wanted us to, um, and, and actually, when it comes to life groups, this is like our midweek gathering is is life groups, um, as opposed to a regular Wednesday night service. And I think there are groups of people, depending on kind of how you're wired, what your personality is, maybe even what kind of church you grew up in, uh, that some people prefer like a Wednesday night gathering over life groups, and some people prefer life groups over a, a Wednesday night gathering. Um, so people are going to have different preferences. So what we really do is we try to listen to the Lord and go, what are you wanting for our church, and what direction you know, are you wanting us to go? Jason, would you mind turning me down just a little bit? And um, so we really try to listen to the Lord and ask Him what He wants for our year, what He wants for our church. Every single thing we do in this church is not necessarily my favorite thing to do. Like, we do it because I feel like God wants us to do it. Um, and, and that's, so everything that happens in the church may or may not really just exactly be your cup of tea. But if you're part of a church and you're part of a vision of a church, I think it's important to connect and hook up with the vision of the church. And if we're going this direction, I think it's important to be uh, involved with it. So for life groups, just a couple things uh, you need to know. We have uh, Life Group Sunday. We always do this right before we kick off life groups. Life Group Sunday is February the 5th. All right, so we still got a couple weeks away from that. On that Sunday, the, the whole Sunday will be about explaining why we do life groups and giving you some practical ways on how to connect to a life group. The following Wednesday is the life group kickoff party. And that's where no matter what life group you're part of, you come to the life group kickoff party. It'll actually be in the student center. And it's a fun night. There'll be food. There'll, there'll be some, some games. It's, it's a very relaxed, fun night. And what we do there is help people get connected to a life group if they don't already know what life group they want to be part of. So we have five life groups this year. And you'll be able to connect with one of those depending on which, you know, best suits and best meets your needs. So again, Life Group Sunday, February the 8th, and then the following, or February the 5th, excuse me, and then the Wednesday, February the 8th, we have the kickoff party where that's like the first life group, except all the life groups are just gathered together in the student center. 
some people said it's like a pep rally. Okay, maybe a little, little bit like that, but not exactly without the pom-poms and cheerleaders and all that. But we'll have a fun time, and, and that'll be Wednesday night, February the 8th. So make sure, if you want to be part of a life group and you say, well, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, make sure you're here February 5th, make sure you're here February the 8th, because that's when we're going to help you get connected to your, uh, to your groups. Also, you can, begin, you can begin looking at which groups you want to be part of now on our website. If you go to our website under the Ministries tab, there is a life group uh, tab. And when you click that life group, it will show you the life groups that we have available, who the leaders are, uh, where it meets, what time it meets, all of that. So you can begin now going to the website and looking, looking at uh, the life group page to begin getting an idea of where you might want to be part of and where you want to might be connected. Final announcement that I have this morning is about the end of year giving statement. So if you have given anything during the year financially to One Life, uh, you will be receiving an end-of-the-year giving statement for your, for your taxes. So the way we do this is, first of all, it comes through email. If you have been giving, especially online, or if we have your email on file, the, the, the report comes via email. If you do not receive it, or if we do not have your email, then it goes out via a mailing address. To, to the address that we have on file. If you do not get it from either of those, that means we do not have accurate information for you either on email or mailing address, so you will need to call the church office and request that and maybe update your information. All right, so again, it'll come via email. If we don't have your email, it'll come physical address. If you don't get either of those, that means we don't have correct information for you, so please call the church office and update it. And we can get it to you that way. Okay, now that all that's out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. Man, y'all didn't even say amen. That's sad. I'm going to have to work on my preaching a little bit. <laughs> so we're in a series right now on fasting. And um, we've, we've got, I've got something I want to talk to you about this morning that I really think is going to bless you. Um, I, I, just, I think I have seen through the years... So much benefit come out of fasting. And one of the things that I learned about fasting is that you get out of it what you put into it. Okay, if you don't believe in fasting or you go, well, I tried the fasting thing. Listen, it, it has to do with what you put into it and the way that you go about it. And please understand with fasting, it is not about just doing a set of physical things. You, you can do a set of physical things. Uh, disciplines and challenges that have nothing to do with God. I mean, you can, you can starve yourself to death. You could work out like a maniac. You could, you could be like a monk, you know, a Tibetan monk, and like have all these harsh things and be completely disconnected from God. So you can't go, well, I did a bunch of hard things and I didn't get results. Listen, it's not about that. The true point of fasting, which we're going to get into this morning, is about humbling yourself before God. And fasting helps you do that if you do it right. Fasting helps you humble yourself before, before God. God cannot work with a person that is not humble. And what the scripture tells us is that when a person is arrogant or prideful, that God actually opposes them. He actually opposes them. And... 
Fasting helps us get to that place of humility. But there are many people that have never bowed their knee. Many people in church that have never truly bowed their knee to the Lord. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But listen, this is why some people can't worship. This is why some people cannot worship. is because they have too much pride in their heart. Too much pride to show any emotion. Too much pride to have any kind of display of affection. But a, a heart that is humbled before the Lord, no problem with that. And there's a lot of things in our lives that can reveal what's going on in our heart. And so you can be doing all the outside things right, but your heart has never been humbled before God. Where you're like, you remember uh, blind Bartimaeus in the Gospels? Where he, he heard Jesus was coming to town? And I'm sure it was embarrassing. I was sure it was humiliating. But he was so sick and tired of being blind, he did not care. He shouted, cried, screamed. People were like, shut up. You're getting on my nerves. He didn't care. He was shouting because he didn't have an ounce of pride left in his life. He'd been so broken, humbled. He's like, I could care less what people think about me. If there is even a slight chance that I could get my answer from God, all my dignity is going out the window. And, and, and I'll, if I've got to shout, if I've got to cry, if I've got to crawl, it doesn't matter. I'm going after God. And guess what? He got his answer. Now you say, does it take that? Do I got to do all that? Well, you have to humble your heart. You have to be humbled before the Lord. And don't make any mistake about it. Pride will stand in your way. Pride will stand in your way of connecting with God. So fasting is about getting your heart to a place. Humility is not the only thing we're after, okay, through fasting. But pride is about getting your heart. The Bible calls it a broken and contrite spirit, which involves more than just humility. But, it, but that's a big part of it. Fasting is about getting your heart to a broken and contrite place before God. It's like we have a lot of things um, in our world where we try to help people. You know, we have rehabilitation homes. Uh, for substance abuse and things like that. And, and uh, we have even military training. And, and all these people that work in these areas, they all know the same thing. I can't do anything with you until I break you. I can't do anything with you until you have humbled yourself. And a lot of the trainings and things like that are designed to do just that, to break you, humble you, get you to a place where I can now actually do something with you. The, the process is the same with God. There are so many people that, they, they go, well, I, I'm not close to God, or I can't get what I'm after. You've never humbled yourself. You've never gotten to that broken and contrite place before God where you were desperate for him, desperate for his move, and you're like, didn't care anymore what anybody thought, didn't care anymore about these worldly things, and you just your only focus was getting close to God, going after God, whatever it takes to encounter God. And he's not, he doesn't respect person. He doesn't favor one person over another. So anybody who gets to that place will encounter and will experience God. Fasting helps us do that, but it's, it's not a magic pill. You can, still, you can fast for 40 days. You can fast for three months. And if you never get your heart right, you're, just, you're doing a lot of physical things that aren't going to produce a result. So fasting is not about purposeless suffering. Fasting is about humbling your heart and getting your heart broken and contrite and humble before God. There are things 
that can be accomplished through fasting that can't be accomplished in any other way. This even happened in the New Testament where uh, Jesus had given his disciples authority to cast out a demon. They're praying over the demon, trying to get the demon to come out. And they were shocked because they'd had power and authority before over it. And they said, why, why won't this one come out? And Jesus' reply to them was, he said, this one does not come out except through prayer and fasting. In other words, now notice, this is, Jesus was not praying and fasting at the time he cast it out. So there's nothing magic about, oh, prayer, fast, prayer, fast, and the demon will come out. What he's saying is a person can't get to the place where they can deal with this without praying and fasting. And he's saying, you are not at the place to be able to handle this one because you're at this level, but you need to go to this level, and the only way you're going to go deeper in the Lord is through prayer and fasting. I've seen this in my life so many times, things that I prayed about, dealt with, through the will of the flesh, read books, listen to podcasts, talk to friends, trying to, how do I overcome this mentality or deal with this or whatever? And it's only through prayer and fasting and getting along with God. You can get answers from God in a time of prayer and fasting that you've been seeking for a decade. God can give it to you just like that, and it'll carry you for the rest of your life. You'll never forget it. Lessons that you'll learn. But it matters and determined, it's determined by what you put into it. So there are things that can be accomplished through prayer and fasting that cannot be accomplished any other way. You may be dealing with things in your life right now that you desperately need God to move on, and it can happen during this fast. But it won't be because of how difficult you made your fast or any of that. It'll be because of how quickly you humble yourself before God and get on your knees before Him. And listen, it has to do with you, not God. Please understand this. Fasting has everything to do with you and really not that much to do with God. And here's what I mean. It, we learn from the time we're children that if we beg and we plead and we whine and we beg and we plead and we whine and we get louder and more desperate that it moves human beings. God's not like that. So fasting is not a way to plead with God and beg with God. Please God, please God do this. That God is not like withholding something until you just beg and grovel enough. That, that's not how it works. That's not even the character of God. See, a parent will give in to that. And the reason they give in is not because, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. A parent will give in not because they love the child. Because they're irritated and they're tired of hearing you. Just sh to shut you up. But God's not like that. So pleading and begging doesn't do anything for God. God, this is hard for people to understand. God doesn't move in our lives because we're miserable. God doesn't move in our lives because we're experiencing a lot of pain. Or that because we're really, really unhappy. That, that's not why God moves. One of the main reasons why you see God move in our lives through Scripture is because of faith. And when people arrive at that place of faith, God moves on their behalf. We're going to get into that in just, a, in just a minute here. But fasting has everything to do with you and not really that much to do with God. It's been said this way, fasting doesn't change God, it changes you. It doesn't change God's mind. It doesn't speed up God's process. What it does is it changes our heart. And it changes us so that we can put ourselves in a position to qualify for God to move 
in our lives. Why doesn't God jump to answer every prayer, deal with every issue? Well, the Scripture actually tells us, um, and, I'm, and we're going to read from the Scripture in just a minute on this, but here's the reason. Because every pain and difficulty is accomplishing something in you. Every pain, every difficult situation, every bit of stress, every bit of anxiety uh, is accomplishing something in you. And if God were to just come in and remove that, then your, your growth is being stunted. You're not growing, you're not developing in that area. Like if you had a personal trainer, and every time you struggled, they just came and jumped under the weight for you, you're never going to grow past where you're at. The whole point is, I have to watch you struggle. I have to watch you grow, and that's a painful process. We have to do this with our children, right? If, if you run in every time your children are struggling or they're sad or you just run in and you're like that helicopter parent, their growth is stunted. They never grow past. See, stress and anxiety is revealing something about where you're at in that area. Like if, if I'm full of anxiety and stress, immediately here's what you need to know. You are weak in that area. That's okay. That's not a that's not something for us to be discouraged. That's not necessarily a negative thing, but it's just revealing you're weak in that area. Like, for example, if you take somebody who is very, 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 very fit, like some of these, you know, strongest men competition. Have you ever watched those on ESPN, like strongest men in the world? Every one of them have a weakness. Every one. They might be amazing at this lift, but when it comes to this, they're weak on that. Now, not weak compared to us, but to the other competitors. They, they're really good at this, but they're not good at everything. And so what you're finding is you may be super strong. There may be things that you could just stay cool, cool as a cucumber. You got no problem. You're in faith. doesn't bother you one bit. But then there's this other area that just stresses you out of your mind. Well, you're strong in this. You're weak in this. Yeah. Well, this, this, every time that I get, you get depressed and I just get mopey and when this happens, that's an area of your life that you are weak, that you have not grown in. And you can grow and develop in that area. So God doesn't remove those things off of us like we want sometime, or else we're just going to stay weak in that area. We're just going to stay weak, and we're never going to grow in that area. So God helps us to grow in that area. Let me give you a personal example so that you don't think I'm just up here preaching to you. We're all in this, right? When I first started the church, uh, there was a lot of things I was totally ready and prepared for. I, there, you know, I'd been in ministry for a while. There's a lot of things I'd done, a lot of things I was strong at, good at, ready to go. But there was one thing I wasn't ready to deal with, and that was carrying the weight of the finances of the church. I mean, the, the burden of having to think about how we're going to pay for this. This bill's due. Oh, this bill. No, this person has to be paid. And that come and do all of the time. And with the way the church works, we don't have, like, clients, right? We don't have we don't have customers. So what happens is we get up on Sundays, people give, or they don't give. And one Sunday, the giving might be this. The next Sunday, it might be not that. And so the bills, but the bills are the same. Everything has to be. So the, the stress of having to deal with that, that was, that was painful for me. That was difficult. Today, it doesn't bother me one bit. Not one bit. Because God gave me total and complete victory over that. But it was actually a several-year process. And here's, what, here's the most important thing I want you to know about that. Today, for those of you that have been here for a while, you know that our church is 100% debt-free. This, this building is paid off. The student center is paid off. 
Those were, those were big debts. God did that. But let me just tell you, I know, I know because I walked the journey of it. Those things, that never happened until I got complete victory over the finances. As a matter of fact, the moment that I got to a place of faith and peace with God where that didn't even bother me one bit, it wasn't just a few months later that the building ended up getting paid off. And I know 100% that if I'd never got to that place and I'm still whining, I'm still complaining, I'm still stressed, I'm still carrying that, we'd still be working on it. Because the moment that, and here was the other thing that happened with that. With the, some of y'all know this story. But we never could afford to pay the note on this building. Every, the, the note was due quarterly. And every quarter, we had to have a miracle from God to come in some way. Some way. Outside the church, some way to come in. It, it was never just, it never could be sustained just by the people in the church. And... I'm literally, this, and we went, we went through that for years. Literally, after the building got paid off, the, next, the very next quarter, the church was at a place that it could sustain the note, and we didn't need it anymore. Now, now how, you can't script that. How does that happen? Because God could have done it all along, but he was waiting on something in you. Excuse me, me. He was waiting on something to happen. He was waiting on something to be accomplished in you and if I and if I delivered you from it by the you know canceling the note or whatever, if I delivered you from that, your growth stops. Your growth stops. But I want you to grow to a place of victory over this, and then you'll see the results happen. This is what fasting does. So fasting is about us. It's about dealing with something in us. You're not begging God to move. So you got we got to change our mentality. We're not going to suffer enough, pray enough, and then God just goes, okay, that you've prayed hard enough, I'll move. It's not that. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to arrive at a certain place in your heart and in your character and who you are, and then you're going to see God move. And fasting expedites that process. That's all fasting is. Fasting expedites that process. It can happen with or without fasting. You, but it may take two, three, five years for you to get to that place. And people get sick of that. And they're like, look, if, if what's holding this thing up is a lesson I need to learn, then I'm getting on my knees and I'm going to pray and fast to expedite and push that thing forward because I'm tired of being in this place. And listen, that will work. It happens all the time in Scripture. That will work. That happens. You can fast and pray and, and set your face to seek God until that thing is accomplished and done in you, and then you'll get the victory that you're after. So fasting is very effective for that. Now, let me give you a quick caveat before we read the scripture on this. Number one, I always have to clarify these things. Number one, this does not mean that every pain and difficulty is from God. You understand that, right? It doesn't mean, when, when we begin to understand this process, sometimes people's mind can go, yeah, God is sending me this to, to train me or develop me. Not necessarily. There are a lot of bad things that happen in this world, and it's not that God is sending them, but God can use them just like you as a parent. I don't send a lot of the difficulties in my kids' lives, but when they're there, I go, well, we're going to learn how to walk through this. And we're going to learn how to grow through this. I didn't send it, but I'm going to, we're going to use it to teach you a lesson in this, in this area. God does the same thing. So please understand, if you're dealing with sickness, you're dealing with pain, you're dealing with 
tragedy. It doesn't mean God sent it. You're just, you're just alive. That's what it means to be alive. But God will get you through it, and he can use it to work something out in you. Also, if you're not getting answered prayer in your life, it doesn't mean uh, that this is the only reason that we're talking about this morning that prayers are not getting answered. Okay, it's not like, well, any time a prayer is not getting answered, it's only because you haven't humbled yourself and you haven't learned the lesson. No, that's not true either. Okay, this is just a part of it. This is, this is something that, you know, that we can learn and that we know is part of it. But there can be other reasons, things that we're not discussing about or talking about this morning. All right, look at James chapter 1, verse 2. James said this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, see, the only reason he would say that is because he understands the revelation that we just talked about. He already understands this. So he says, look, this mentality, if what I'm saying is true this morning, then count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because they're working something out in you that can't be worked out any other way. And so you should be excited to meet them. Because you're about to grow. You're about to go to another level. You're about to become more effective. You're about to get closer to God. You're about to increase in your faith. You're about to increase in your endurance. You're about to increase in your love for humanity. So he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He didn't say that they were joy. He didn't say that that they are pleasant. Of course they're not. The reason you're counting it joy is because you know what it's going to do and what it's going to accomplish in you. And listen, with the right attitude, any, any, any kind of trial, any kind of difficulty can be used for this purpose. I made a, I made a joke years ago, except it wasn't really a joke. It was true, but it is kind of funny. Now, when I was a teenager, I was a weird teenager, okay? You're going to think this is weird, but when I was a teenager, there was a few things, and I, I pick on my dad. I don't know where he's at this morning, but he couldn't hear very well, so when we were driving... He would turn the blinker on and leave the blinker on. Now, that might just be a dad thing, and it doesn't matter whether you can hear well or not. I don't know. It seemed like I know a lot of dads that do that. But they turn the blinker on, you know, and they're driving on a straight highway, and the blinker just stays on. Now, that bothered me, all right? It just really got under my skin. I don't know why. And so when I was younger, I'd always speak up and say something about it, right? I'd say, hey, Dad, turn the blinker off. What? Blinker ain't on? Yeah, it is. You can't hear it. Turn it off. Okay, he turned the blinker off. Well, when I start, around the time I was like 15, I started walking with the Lord. I know this seems ridiculous. The Lord, like, convicted me about that. I'm sitting in the back seat. The blinker's on. It's grating on my nerves. I go to say something. And in my heart, I'm like, you need to just shut up. I'm like, this is so simple, right? Why, why does it matter if the blinker stays on? Because guess what? It's working something out in you. Sitting there, listening to that blinker for 15 miles all the way from the interstate to the house. Yeah, it was working out something in me. He was training me to deal with all the church people. You know, I'm just kidding. Just that, that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it was working out something in me. Now, it seems simple, it seems ridiculous, but here's the point. It doesn't matter the trial or the difficulty. Anything, any challenge can be used to work out a character flaw in you. And this is what fasting is about. So James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, if you read through 
the Gospels and the New Testament, you will find out that one of the number one, if not the number one character trait required to make it through the end times is endurance. It's the number one thing that is mentioned over and over and over and again is your endurance. How much can you endure without quitting? How much can you go through? How much can you deal with without quitting and without giving up? It's the number one thing that's mentioned. So he says it here. For you know that the testing of your faith produces that number one quality that is necessary to make it through the end times. Verse 4, and let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, in other words, let that endurance have its full effect or let it grow to its full capacity. In other words, don't jump ship because you got really uh, painful or really uncomfortable or really difficult. Let it, let it have its full work. I've had times in my life where I wanted to jump and deal with a situation because I knew by the arm of the flesh I could jump in, I could handle this, I could handle that person, I could deal with this situation and make it all go away like that. And the Lord would say, no, I want you to just rest. I want you to just sit. I don't want you to do, I don't want you to lay a finger. I don't want you to do one thing to it. Why? Is it, is it because it's about me? It's about something working in me, something I need to learn to rest and not just jump and do things by the arm of the flesh because you can. Sometimes you need to wait and rest and trust God. So he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember this, comfort does not build endurance. Yet, it's the number one thing that we crave, I think, is comfort. So, we like comfort. We like peace. We like, we like being in our pajamas on the couch. We like being cozy, safe. But comfort does not build endurance. Comfort and ease do not build capacity. Capacity meaning how much can you carry? How much can you handle? Only difficulty and trials can do that. Many times God's goal is to get you to the point where what once would have crushed you is now a routine lift. What, you know, if you ever went to the gym and maybe you had a weight that you couldn't lift and it just, you, you got under it and it would have crushed you, well, six months down the road, a year down the road, he, God wants to get you to the point where what once would have crushed you is now just a routine lift. There's nothing. I can deal with this. I deal with this all the time. It's no problem. And, and I've seen this in so many areas of my life. But see, you have to understand the process of God and how he works. You've got to understand that there's more going on in your life than just, oh, this person. I can't believe they did that or this situation or I can't believe they handled that this way. Listen, there's, there's more than that going on than just what you can see with the eye. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's demons everywhere and there's some big spiritual attack. It, it could be. But... What, but I can tell you the one thing for sure that's going on is that as a child of God, a servant of God, someone who's being trained by God, yeah, he's using that situation that you're in. Because I'm telling you, he doesn't let any go to waste. He doesn't let any go to waste. Whatever you're walking through, if anything, and if you're not walking through anything, just hold on, give it a few months. It'll come around. That's how it works. 
But whatever you're walking through, God is using it. Some people say, well, I wonder if God's testing me. Yes, always. Everything's a test. How you handle promotion is a test. How you handle somebody being mad at you is a test. How you handle somebody cutting you off in traffic is a test. It's all a test. So just there, that'll help you. Everything is a test. Everything's a test. So there's always something going on more than what you can realize. And, and here's the other thing. So much of our life is about being tested and being trained. A lot more than we realize. Because if you think about, for example, John the Baptist. John the Baptist trained 30 years for a six-month ministry. Isn't that amazing? 30 years, John the Baptist was in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, wearing camel's hair, and alone, by himself with God, 30 years. And you never hear anything out of John the Baptist. The first time you hear something about John the Baptist from that point forward, his ministry was six months long. God prepared him for 30 years to be effective in six months. But let me tell you, those six months, those six months were more powerful than many lifetimes. Hundreds of thousands of lifetimes of other people's lives put together. So 30 years he trained and prepared for a six-month ministry. Guess what? Jesus trained 30 years also for a three-year, a three-year ministry. For 30 years, you don't hear anything about Jesus. Other than when he was 12, he went to the temple. You don't hear anything about his, his life. But he was training. He was preparing. He was walking with God. He never did any miracles. He never preached any sermons. For 30 years, there was one purpose to his life. It was to stay close to God, to train, to be developed, to pray. And then the last three years of his life, all of that training came, came to fruition. And he, there was so much fruit from those three years of his life. He trained 30 years for that moment. So if you get tired of training or you, or you think, well, man, it seems like God's always putting us through something. Yeah. It's, there's always training, and the training never stops. It doesn't matter how far you get, the training never stops. So how does this relate to fasting? Well, this is a, this is a process that's going to be going on no matter what, but fasting supercharges this process. Fasting expedites this process in your life. Fasting sort of manufactures circumstances that can deal with these things in your life. Right? It can deal with the flesh nature, selfishness. It can deal with your apathy and your lack of prayer. So fasting jumpstarts this already present process that God is doing and working in all of our lives. Because when we fast, we are intentionally humbling ourselves. We are intentionally embracing weakness. We are forcing ourselves to be more dependent on God alone. I want to read a story to you out of 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I don't think people really bring their Bibles to church anymore. We got the screen, you know, so you depend on that. But, but it's something pastors say. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, I know you're not really turning there, but... 
the time it takes you to get your eyes up to the screen. I'm going to tell you a story, okay? No, I, <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, my mom would come up with creative ways of discipline. And I specifically remember this one day where our punishment for who knows what, probably something my brother did, nothing, I don't think I was even involved, but anyway, um, <laughs> we got kicked out of the house, and the punishment was all day, you can't come in the house, and you're not allowed to play with any of your toys outside, the only thing you can do is use sticks and mud. And for some reason, this was one of the worst punishments. I don't know why. I remember being so upset. I was like, this is the worst. What kind of mother does this? And so literally, we're like, all right. All right. So we went and found a mud puddle <laughs> and a few sticks, and we started building teepees and who knows what else. And I had the time of my life. I enjoyed it so much. I had a great time. By the end of the day, I, I remember in the most dorky way, like telling mom, I wish you'd send us outside more where we could only play with sticks and mud. Uh, you know, and I just had the greatest time. And, but like, if you think about the situations in our life, that's how it happens a lot of time. We find ourselves in a situation and we're like, and we can feel sorry for ourselves. We go, this is the worst. But if you endure it and you go through it the right way, you're going to find that growth is happening in your life. And I know a lot of parents that would look outside after 30 minutes and go, oh, it's okay, sweetheart, it's okay. You could go ahead and come inside now. I think you've learned your lesson. Not me. It, it definitely took all day. And that's how it is with God. He's not one of these types of people that's going to just come in and rescue you because you're really uncomfortable. And the sooner we understand that, the better. And it's not because he's mean. It's because he loves you. It's because he loves you, and he actually knows what's good for you. 2 Kings 18. This is a, we're going to read a lot of scripture here. This is kind of a long story. I'll go through it quickly. But this is the story of King Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings 18, it says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when you read through all the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, there were very, very few. They could be counted maybe like on one hand of the people that it says this about them. Because at the beginning of everybody's reign, it either says they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Hezekiah was like one of those that actually did what was pleasing and right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him wherever he went out, and he prospered. So you could say, Hezekiah was a pretty good guy. He was a pretty good king. And I'll just briefly make this point. You know, we run into this a lot where really good people that really love God and are really doing things right have really hard and really difficult things that happen in their life. It, you're not exempt and I don't know why this is a mentality that we have to approach. It feels like over and over again, you're not exempt 
from things happening to you just because you're doing all the right things. That's not the world we live in. And so, but this mentality is like, well, if this is happening, I must have done something wrong. I must have sinned. I must have displeased God. Not necessarily. There are difficult, bad things that happen to really good people that are doing things right. And so the answer is not, or the question is not, are they going to happen? The question is, how do we move through them and past them and get victory over them? Okay, so we're going to skip around a lot. Now we're going to verse 19. Um, In the 14th year that Hezekiah was ruling, Judah was at war with Assyria. And their leader, Sennacherib, the king of Syria, had Judah surrounded. And Sennacherib and Assyria, they were the most powerful nation in the world. This was sort of after Babylon, in a, in a sense. Babylon still existed, but Assyria had actually conquered Babylon. Which Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, that was like the, the world superpower. But Assyria had conquered them. Babylon was now like absorbed into their kingdom. So... This was the most powerful nation in the world. And little Judah, which Judah had separated off from Israel. So they're almost like two different nations. You know, they're this little bitty tiny nation. They, they have no chance. They have no chance. If, if Assyria wanted to come in and take your nation, just throw up the white flag. It's over. You have no chance. And so that's where they're at. That's what's going on now. So in verse 19, Judah surrounded by Assyria. And the Rabshakeh, which was like the general, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Like, why have you not already surrendered? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Verse 23, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Look at the arrogance. He's saying, we're about to go to battle with you, and y'all are so weak. We'll actually give you 2,000 horses horses to put riders on them, and you still won't be able to compete. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to him, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? See, there are things in the Bible y'all didn't know about. Y'all did not come to church thinking y'all were going to hear that this morning. But, you know, you got to read your Bible. There's some... There's some pretty good insults in there. You know, y'all, maybe y'all could use this one one day. Anyway, he says, uh, <laughs> we got lost on that one. He says, I'm not going to speak in Aramaic because he said, I want everybody to hear this and everybody to understand it. He said, by the way, these men are the ones that are going to reap the consequences if you go forward with this. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So you see the situation that's going on. I mean, he's weak, he's surrounded. Now they're insulting him. 
they're, they're taunting. He, he's taunting all of the people. He's saying, look, you're believing in God. You're trusting in God. Don't fool yourself with that. Don't kid yourself with that. Don't comfort yourself with that. God's not coming through for you. God's not coming through for you. I'm the king of Assyria. You can't do anything to stop me. Just watch how this progresses. Verse 33. He says, Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? See, this is what they were used to. He's like, all these other nations had gods too. And we didn't have any problem taking over them. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephraim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So the arrogance, the pride, he said, none of these other gods have been a problem and your gods on the same level as them and it won't be any problem. 2 Kings 19.1 As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now, this is the key moment for Hezekiah. Because, first of all, this is the equivalent of fasting. Because when he, when he tears his clothes, what he's doing is he's, he's making himself look disheveled. You know, the king would have been, of course, in robes and a crown and presented a certain way. He, he tears his clothes. Now he looks like, you know, maybe he looks like someone that's homeless. He's, he's disheveled. Then they, they takes, uh, he says sackcloth, covered himself with sackcloth. Usually when you see this mentioned in scripture, it's actually paired with sackcloth and ashes. Maybe you've heard that phrase. And sackcloth is literally just like burlap. And so it's, if you've ever had burlap on your skin or you've worn a burlap sack, it's very uncomfortable. It itches your skin and ashes just on their face, dirty, disheveled, tore. And what is it? It's, why, why would that do anything? Like, why in the Old Testament did they do this? And why did he think that this was going to accomplish or do anything? Do you know what he's doing? He's humbling himself before God. And he knows the human tendency and he knows the human nature. And he knows that it's not enough to just mere words say, Oh God, I humble myself before you. Like we love to do. It's not enough. So he said, I need to do something to help me humble myself. And so he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he's crying before God, and it quickly got him to the place where he could, he could have an encounter with God and get God to answer his prayer. So this is why I'm talking to you about this with fasting, is because some of us are doing that now with fasting. Now maybe, please, nobody show up to church. Clothes ripped, sackcloth and ashes, okay? But internally... You can, you can begin to humble yourself and expedite this process in your life if you need God to move. So why does he go to this extreme? Also, this is another reason. Why? Because he's on a timeline. See, he doesn't have three months to get humbled by God. He's on a timeline. He maybe has days at this point. So he doesn't have time to fool around with all this, you know, light fasting. No, he ripped the clothes, put on the ash cloth, grab the ashes, heap them on the head, whatever you got to do to quickly humble yourself before God. That's why you see this extreme measure because he's got a timeline he's dealing with. And sometimes in our lives, that's where we're at. Like either God's going to move or this thing ain't working out. 
And when that's the case, you need to think about what are you going to do? How bad do you want this? How much are you going to go after God? How much are you going to humble yourself to get to that place where God can move in your life? So he said, I got to get somewhere quick. So he, he gets after it. Now, verse 14. This is still chapter 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. So, so Sennacherib ends up writing King Hezekiah a letter. We're skipping some of this. Uh, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And um, it, basically, if you read the letter, it's a lot of what the Rabshakeh said. It's very similar. So just taunting him, taunting God. So Hezekiah receives the letter. He read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now, I love this part. I love this part. He, he literally takes the letter that Sennacherib wrote, and he brings it into his prayer room, and he, and he lays it out before God. And almost as if to say, God, I want you to read this. God, I want you to see what these people are saying about you, what they're saying about me. I want you to see this. And I've known people <clears throat> to do the same thing. And I think you have biblical pre precedence for it. To take, maybe you got a medical report. You lay it out in the presence of God. This is what they're saying. They're saying nothing can be done about this. Or you get a bill and about your mortgage. Or, and you lay it in the presence of God. You say, God, this is what they're saying. Nothing, nothing can be done. And I believe that it means something to God. I believe that it, it calls his attention to it. So Hezekiah, he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So he, he points out to the Lord, he says, you see, some people don't know if they can talk to God like this. That's why I'm reading this. Go read how David talked to the Lord. Go, go read how Isaiah talked to the Lord. God's not bothered by that. God's not bothered by us coming and saying, God, look at these people surrounding us. Look at all of this. Look what he says. He, it almost seems disrespectful. He says, open your ears. Open your eyes to see what is happening. He's full of passion. He's not being disrespectful. He's, he's passionate. He's desperate. So he says, incline your ear, Lord. Open your eyes and see. And he says, what the king is saying is correct. They have laid waste to all of these nations. It's true. They destroyed all these other gods, but they were not gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O oh Lord... Save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. God ends up answering him through the prophet Isaiah, and we get that response, verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound Against it. Now remember, Judah is surrounded already. Their armies are already surrounded, the, the, the nation. And yet the prophecy is coming. He shall not come into the city, nor shoot one arrow 
against it or lay a siege mount against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And what ends up happening to Sennacherib is he ends up being murdered by his own sons. This most powerful but arrogant man who did not know who he was dealing with. He thought he was dealing with Hezekiah. He didn't know he was dealing with God Almighty. Arrogant, proud, surrounds it. Look, with a snap of a finger, God sends out one angel. One angel. You know the Bible says that there's hosts of angels in heaven. Sends out one angel. Kills 185,000 of the troops. And the whole thing is turned around literally overnight. Now please understand, this is the same God that we serve. There's no new angels. All right, that angel, he's still, he's still on duty. <laughs> still on duty. That God that, that, this ha- that Hezekiah prayed to, same God that you serve. I know it may not happen just like this, and hopefully you don't even have that in your heart. You know that you want to have 185,000 people slain on your behalf. You know, hopefully that's not even in your heart. But the point is, that kind of power to turn things around, for miracles, for things to happen, it's not hard for God. It's not hard for God. What you have to focus on is changing you. And fasting helps us do that. Okay, real quick before we close. What are the lessons that we learn from this story? Well, number one, God does not answer prayer because we are really uncomfortable or really unhappy or really miserable. That's not what moves God. That may be what moves people. Like you may have people in your life that that's how you get them to move. Is by showing them and how unhappy you are and complaining and showing how miserable you are. And you feeling sorry for yourself and getting them to feel sorry for you. That's not how God moves. And I don't, I don't tell you that to be mean. I tell you that because you're not going to get answers that way. You're not going to get answers that way. Let Hezekiah be, a, be an example of fasting, prayer, humbling your humbling heart, getting in faith and saying, God, we need your intervention. We need you to help. Okay, number two, the quicker you learn the lessons from your situation, the quicker you can get out of it. I've had things in my life that I know were prolonged longer than they should have been because of the way I was handling it, the way I was acting. The quicker you learn the lessons from your situation, the quicker you can get out of it. Number three, the more you fight, complain, feel sorry for yourself, mope, try to fix it by the arm of the flesh, the longer you are prolonging the situation. And number four, God doesn't need you to fast in order for him to move. He needs your pride to be broken and your heart to be humbled. And you need fasting because fasting expedites that process in our lives. Amen. 